Thanks for tuning in to this week's sermon at Fountain City Church. We hope that you are blessed by this message today. If you'd like to learn more, you can check out our website at fountaincity.org. Jump in your Bibles to Mark chapter 12. And if you don't have your Bible, we have some back... uh, We have some back on the table in a pile. Mark chapter 12, verse 18. Hey, one of the things that we do on Sundays, uh, we really dig in and we learn how to worship together as a community, pray for one another as a community, but we also strive to understand the scriptures. How many of you know that the Bible was not written for 21st century Westerners? Now it speaks to us and it speaks loudly because the Holy Spirit translates it and interprets it for us. But this was written to ancient Near East Jewish people, and we are running through lots of filters to get to what we understand is the Word of God for us today through the power of the Holy Spirit. Um, And so in this time, I actually want to encourage us as a body. Maybe you didn't grow up in a place where the Scriptures had high value, um, or maybe you've only seen the Bible on YouVersion or the Bible app. Can I encourage you? Carry your Bible with you. There is something about growing in familiarity and strength and knowing what the Word says. And this morning, we're going to kind of talk about a little bit of that. Um, and so there's, there's no shame in that. We've all grown up in a culture that has kind of diminished the value of the Scriptures. But for our church, we want to set a stake in the ground and say as a community that we believe in the power and the authority of the Scriptures to open the full wisdom of God and to introduce us to the power of the Spirit. Are you with me? And so we want to be a people who come up under the scriptures. All right. Mark chapter 12, verse 18. It says, Then the Sadducees, who say that there is no resurrection, they came to Jesus with a question. Teacher, they said, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but no children, the man must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first one married and died without leaving any children, and then the second one married the widow Uh, died without leaving children as well. I'm sorry, but he also died leaving no child. And it was the same with the third. In fact, none of the seven left any kids. And last of all, the woman died also. So at the resurrection, whose wife will she be since the seven were married to her? Jesus replied, are you not in error because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God? When the dead rise, they will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. Now about the dead rising, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the account of the burning bush, how God said to him, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are badly mistaken. Welcome to church. We're continuing our study today on the Gospel of Mark, and over the last several weeks, we have bumped into this this, um, really fiery passage about Jesus talking to the leaders of Israel and saying, hey, God has planted a vineyard and he put you over it, but you are like wicked servants who are not carrying out the purposes of this vineyard. You are failing. And at the end of that passage of Scripture where Jesus is indicting the leaders of the nation of Israel, something happens. It says that they start to look for opportunities to murder him. Okay? So that is the big context for Mark chapter 12. Men are trying to kill Jesus. And how do they do it? They live under Roman occupation where they cannot go out and just kill an innocent man. It doesn't fit their law. And it's not um, legal according to Rome being over them. So what do they do? They are trying to find a way to entrap Jesus through everyday conversation. They want him to say something that incites the Romans to murder him. They're trying to get Rome to do it for them. Last week, we actually saw how the Pharisees and the Herodians gang up on Jesus, and they start to quiz him about the imperial tax. The idea is they're going to get Jesus to say, no, you don't have to pay taxes. Caesar is a chump. And then all of a sudden, Rome can come and snuff out Jesus. But Jesus is a kung fu master. Are you with me? And in a conversational moment like this, Jesus turns and he says, give to Caesar what is Caesar's, but give back to God what is God's, which is a great way of saying God owns everything. Give it all to him. Money aside, send it to Caesar, but your life belongs to him. Give back to God what is God's. And so the Pharisees and the Herodians are like, man, one Jesus, zero Pharisees. 
And next up is the Sadducees, who come with their own agenda and way to get at Jesus. Now, let me introduce the Sadducees to you really quickly, because we don't hear a lot about the Sadducees. I remember as a kid, we had a song just to familiarize ourselves with these things. Do you remember it? Um, All you church kids, now's the time. Now's the time to show your value. Um, I don't remember the full thing, but I do remember the Pharisees, because they're not fair, you see. I don't want to be a Pharisee. I don't want to be a Pharisee. Because they're not fair, you see. I just want to be a sheep. Oh, you church people, you're so messed up. You're messed up just like me. Okay. And then there was a verse about the Sadducees. I don't want to be a sad. Yeah, because they're just sad, you see. But that didn't really help me understand what was going on in the life of a Sadducee. Right? So let me introduce to you a little bit about the Sadducees. Uh, During the time of Jesus, there were three major religious sects in the nation of Israel. There were the Pharisees, which we all know. And in fact, we talk about the Pharisees all the time like they're the only people in opposition to Jesus. But there are Pharisees, and there are Sadducees, and there are Essenes. There are also Romans, and there are Centurions, and then there are just Jews who don't care at all about Jesus. There's lots of ideological opposition to Jesus. But the Sadducees were one of the three major groups in Israel at the time. And they were a group of highly influential and powerful priests and elites. They were the old money of Israel. They were well-educated. They were wealthy. They were politically connected to Rome. Um, And so it's important for us to understand that for the Sadducees, where the Pharisees were struggling with grace and didn't understand how to come to God through righteousness according to faith, the Sadducees understood that they really wanted to partner with whoever benefited them in this life, and they had no idea about the mystery and the beauty of God beyond this world. They were the priests. They were people who had high accolades, and people really adored them, and Rome benefited them. And one of the other things that's really important to know about this group of Sadducees is that theologically, they only believed that God inspired the first five books of the Bible. Okay, so Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Number, and Deuteronomy. These are the five books of the Torah, and this is what they said God spoke. So for them, everything was built around this idea that all of the rest of the Hebrew scriptures, that the books of the prophets, that the Psalms and the Proverbs and the books of wisdom and poetry, that none of them had any bearing on the life of a a God follower, of a Jew in that day. Um, And so one of the things that that really affected for this group of people is that they they believed that resurrection was a lie. And they believed that eternity wasn't even a thing we needed to consider. Now, this makes perfect sense if you're a person who only finds your theology and doctrine from the first five books of the Bible. Because if you go and you read through Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, and Numbers, you don't get any idea about eternity or resurrection. There's nothing said. In fact, if you're a Sadducee, you think people are making this stuff up. And so the conclusion that you might come to if you're a Sadducee living in first century Israel is that this life is all there is. This 60 or 70 or 80 or 90 years, if you live it really well, is all that we really have. The conclusion that we come to is YOLO, right? You guys remember for like 12 seconds when that was popular and people would say that out loud, right? And if you believe YOLO, then you probably live with a lot of FOMO. I don't know what it is with the acronyms or who's making these up, but they're beautiful for this morning, okay? I'm 39. I can say whatever I want. Um, and, And so we have to understand if this group of people, the Sadducees, if they actually believe that this life is all there is, and this is kind of a... A a combative subject, no matter where they go, resurrection. In fact, there's this really funny moment in the book of Acts when the Apostle Paul is traveling, and he's about to get beat up, and he uses his wits, and he says something about resurrection because he knows the Pharisees and the Sadducees are in the room, so that they start fighting each other, and then he just kind of dips, all right? It's real funny. I I don't know if you've ever been, like, in, in our context, it would be like me talking about Auburn and Alabama, and then just dipping out. Right? I just throw the grenade out, and I disappear like a phantom. And that's what Paul does. And so 
you can imagine if this life is all there is, you kind of start to come to some conclusions about how to live, right? Like, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. That's what the writer of Ecclesiastes says. But this has really bled into our culture right now, and it's, it certainly was at the bedrock of who the Sadducees were and the way that they lived. They thought if we only have 60 or 70 or 80 years, then we should drink the best drinks, all the coffee or beer or wine, whatever that is for you, eat all the best food, fill up on all the sweetest experiences, and make sure to document it on Instagram stories, right? Um, like, fill up on sexual encounters, load your bank account, buy the biggest toys. Why? Because there's nothing after this. This is the full range of your experience and understanding of life. We only get a few decades, go hard after it. But suddenly, there is a very different perspective that we hold as Christ followers, that 60 and 70 and 80 years is a drop in the proverbial ocean of what God has invited us into in life, that there is so, so much more. And and I want to caution us that this morning, this is also how our culture lives. And inside and outside the church, I think that many of us have kind of slipped into this hedonistic, humanistic way of trying to fill our lives up with pleasure and delight because we practically don't believe in eternity or resurrection. And even so, okay, even with all of that, why do the Sadducees stir up a conversation about resurrection to trap Jesus? Like, How is resurrection going to get Jesus in trouble with Rome? I want to dip into that and tell you a little bit about why that might be. Um, I like John Mark Comer's assessment of this situation. He says, resurrection was a dangerous idea for first century Sadducees. Firstly, because the first place that we see resurrection start to rise up in the scriptures is in Ezekiel chapter 37. Do I have any scholars in the room who can tell me what's going on with Ezekiel 37? Say it. Dry bones. This is the prophetic passage where God says he takes Ezekiel, which is a funny passage, by the hair, lifts him up. That's how the Holy Spirit takes him. He lifts him up by the hair, carries him over to a valley, and he says, hey, look, lots of dead bones. (laughs) It's the weirdest passage ever, okay? And he's giving this prophetic idea that God doesn't simply leave dead things dead, but he is breathing the nation of Israel back to life. It's the first time that resurrection starts to peak up in the scriptures. And all of a sudden, the nation of Israel is getting a context for for the idea that even though they have been captives to Babylon, even though Rome is ruling over them, that that is not the final part of their story, that God is going to breathe life into them and raise them up again. So John Mark Comer says this, this idea of resurrection is dangerous to the Sadducees because it threatens Rome. It teaches people that there is something past the worst day in your life, that God has given us hope for something on the other side of that. And slowly over history, this idea of resurrection moved strictly from the nation of Israel. Because how many of you know, that's great, but we're not Israeli. Yes? And so the idea of resurrection needs to somehow connect to my life. And slowly through the Old Testament prophets and the scriptures, this idea of resurrection started to bleed into individuals' lives, that they believed that men and women and children, us, that we also would be resurrected. And suddenly, this changes the conversation. Why is this so dangerous? Because Jesus, who is a radical rabbi from Nazareth, is coming to teach and preach about a righteousness that is devoted to him as the connection to God. And they've got a group of people who are being threatened with death all the time. Now, what will remove the sting of death. If I come in this morning or somebody came in this morning and they have a gun and they're threatening us, if you feel like the 60 or 70 or 80 years that we have on this earth is all that you have, you understand that they hold the MasterCard to killing us. They, they hold the MasterCard to our hope. Are you with me? But if somebody walks in this morning and they're doing the exact same action and you and I firmly believe in resurrection, what happens? It doesn't, it doesn't matter. The worst day of my life on this end leads me into the best moment of my life for eternity. There, there is no sting in death if I really believe in resurrection. There's no sting for me. Now, other people may hurt. You may weep. But if somebody comes and takes me out this morning, I am more alive than I have ever been before. 
Amen? And, and so Rome fears the idea of resurrection because resurrection says you can't really triumph over us. It doesn't matter what you do to us. It doesn't matter if you feed us to lions in the Colosseum or burn us in your colonnade like Nero did. You cannot harm us because we will be alive with God forever. And they say, man, this is an incredibly dangerous idea. But lastly, the Sadducees were benefiting from Rome being in control. Rome had actually built this infrastructure where the Sadducees were in collusion with them. There was a political connection to the Roman Empire and those who were oppressing their people. And so the reason they're afraid of resurrection is that it gives an opportunity for Rome to be defeated. And decades later, guys, that's exactly what happens. The Roman Empire pulls back from the city of Jerusalem. Jewish order is reinstated for a time, and the Sadducees disappear and cease to exist. They're no longer in the history books after that time because they no longer have Rome behind them. Are you with me? So resurrection wasn't just an academic topic. It had implications on everything for those people. And can I just say, it has implications on everything for you and me. If we live with resurrection at the center point of our lives, if we understand the, 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 um, the dynamic quality of eternity, it changes the way that I live on a Tuesday when all hell is breaking loose in my life and family. Are you with me? Because my hope isn't snuffed out by what is happening in the immediate future. My hope is connected to a God who is eternal, who never started and will never end, and who always is, and who has called me to also be uh, with him forever. Amen. So let's look back at this text, and we're going to go through line by line, and we're actually going to talk about what this means. Because the Sadducees have a very crafty way of trying to use resurrection against Jesus, and Jesus is a kung fu master. Okay. Verse 19, teacher, they said, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but no children, the man has to marry the widow and raise up offspring for her brother. Pause. How many of you are new to the Bible? Anybody? Like, I'm just now starting to crack into this thing. How many of you know this passage then? They're referring to the fact that if a man dies, then that man's brother has to take his former wife and get her pregnant, and she has to have a baby. It, it would be like this morning if Chrissy and I didn't have any kids, and all of a sudden, I passed away. It is Brent or Evan, my brother's jobs, to marry Chrissy, to get her pregnant, and she's going to name that first child son of Grant. Are you with me? Anybody else struck by the weirdness of this passage? And all of us are going, what the crap is going on in the Bible this morning? <laughs> why, why is the Bible saying such weird things on Sunday? <laughs> Can't you just keep it together, Grant? Let's talk about normal stuff. Some of you brought visitors and you're embarrassed right now. Okay. <laughs> Welcome to the Bible. The Bible is thousands of years old and transitions through cultures and time. Yes? We talked about that this morning. So I want us to read through Deuteronomy 25, 5 through 10 really quickly. Keep your finger at Mark 12. Go to the left to Deuteronomy 25, 5 through 10. Go ahead. It's hard to hear the screens of phones swiping. That's what I'm listening for. <laughs> yeah. Is that what it sounds like? <laughs> Deuteronomy chapter 25, verse 5. What in the world are they getting at? Why are they bringing this up to Jesus? And what bearing does it have on our lives? We're going to get there. Deuteronomy 25, verse 5, if brothers are living together and one of them dies without a son, his widow must not marry outside the family. Her husband's brother shall take her and marry her and fulfill the duty of a brother-in-law to her. The first son she bears shall carry on the name of the dead brother so that his name will not be blotted out from Israel. However, actually, let's stop right there. So, so listen to that. Like I said, my brothers would have to come and they would have to take Chrissy on as their wife and they would have to get her pregnant to, to keep my name going in Israel. And so for them, names and history was incredibly important. Not only that, but they wanted to make sure that the future generations were connected to their lineage. And so they would do this as an insurance policy to make sure that my name is carried on. But imagine this, a couple of brothers-in-law don't want to do this thing, right? So verse 7, however, 
If a man does not want to marry his brother's wife, she shall go to the elders at the town gate and say, my husband's brother refuses to carry on his brother's name. He won't fulfill the duty of a brother-in-law to me. And this is amazing. Then the elders of his town shall summon and talk to him. And if he persists in saying, I don't want to marry her, his brother's widow shall go up to him in the presence of the elders, take off one of the sandals, spit in his face and say, this is what is done to the man who will not build up his brother's family line. Was that a good, is that all right? I could go higher if I need to. Okay. This is what is done to the man. I sound like Mickey Mouse now. This is what is done to the man who will not build up his brother's family's line. And listen to this. That man's line shall be known in Israel as the family of the unsandaled. This is a kung fu movie, I'm telling you. You are the family of the unsandaled. What, what's happening here? The Sadducees are pointing back to a story and they're saying, Jesus, if resurrection is in fact true, but this guy is marrying all these women Aren't they being unfaithful to God's promise out of Genesis 1 and 2 that we shall be one flesh? If they're being bound together, aren't we breaking the law of God in the middle of this? Now, this is really, really interesting. The family of the unsandaled. Now, aside from this not making sense in our culture, in that day, this was actually a law of justice and mercy. Uh, when, when women didn't have the right to vote, they, they were actually looked at almost as property in that time thousands of years ago. This was a way to ensure that they would not become destitute and outcasts in their culture. And it also reinforced that the family line would be carried on. And so we look at this and we think this is nuts. They think this is actually revolutionary as justice and mercy in a community that did not give women value. And so God was actually reinforcing the need for justice and so the Sadducees are actually quoting from this passage because they feel like it's going to be politically expedient. This is going to help us get Jesus in trouble. Now let's look back to Mark chapter 12. So this is their story. Now, there were seven brothers. And the first one married and died without leaving any kids. And the second one married the widow. But he also died, leaving no kids. And it was the same with the third. In fact, none of the seven left any kids at all. Last of all, the woman died too. Now, how many men do you think these days we would get in before somebody's like, that is a dragon lady. We got to stay away from her. <laughs> Everybody is dying. There's no way I'm marrying that lady. Spit in my face, throw your shoe at me. Let's do what we need to do. I'm out. <laughs> None of the seven left any children. And the woman died too. And at the resurrection, whose wife will she be? The Sadducees are saying, we got you. Jesus, we got you. We finally have cornered you. There's no way that you're getting out of this, and we're going to use this against you. And notice Jesus' response. Aren't you in error because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God? Now, this was a slam dunk. Jesus is talking to the spiritual elite. He's talking to priests, and he is talking to academic scholars and he says to them, you guys may know the Torah inside and out. You may be able to quote it. You understand everything about those first five books, but you don't even know the scriptures. That's like him looking at Michael Jordan and saying, you don't even understand basketball. Or looking at an engineer and saying, you don't understand bridges. Or finding Storm somewhere in the room and saying, Storm, you don't even understand working out, right? <laughs> like, you don't know the first thing about lifting weights, Storm. That, that is the equivalent of, what, of what's happening here in this moment. And Jesus simply says to them in verse 25, When the dead rise, they will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. Now, Jesus gives us some insider insight into what resurrection holds in store for us. Firstly, he tells us that marriage won't exist in resurrection. Now, for some of you, that feels like a very painful statement, that at the resurrection, there won't be any marriages. Christy's here this morning, and in the resurrection, she and I won't be married. We won't be the Collins family. I won't have a ring on my finger, and the way that our lives will work very, very differently. I have no, um, uh, I, I'm convinced that we will know each other. I'm convinced that our memories will continue even into that place, but the scriptures say that we will be in a different spot. Now, why is that? Why is it that marriage is going to cease in the resurrection? Well, marriage started because of the fall. 
You guys remember? In the book of Genesis, when God actually creates Adam and Eve and there is this fall, he gives them this command to go, to be fruitful and multiply, to fill the earth and subdue it. But at the resurrection with the new heavens and new earth, everything is going to be finalized. And so there's no reason for us to be married in that way, right? Secondly, this ought to give us a little bit of perspective to how and why we choose spouses and mates the way that we do. If this is all about functioning in God's kingdom and multiplying what God has given to us, we're going to choose mates and spouses very differently than if we're just looking for the hottest thing on the block. Are you with me? If, if my heart, if your heart, and I, I've been married for a minute, okay? 16 minutes, years, yes. But for some of you in here, you're, you're single and you're actually still trying to figure out, how do I make decisions about future spouses, mates? How, how, do, I, how do I do that? Well, right here, he says, marriage is actually a short-term thing in the longevity of our lives and in this perspective. And we have to be careful how we make decisions for spouses and mates because these are meant to serve a purpose, to fill the earth and subdue it and multiply in it, to let God's kingdom thrive here. How do you choose a husband or a wife? You choose one who is deeply devoted and in love with Jesus, who would say no to you before he would or she would to Jesus who will say yes to Jesus before he or she will to you. Because if he or she is in alignment with Jesus, and if the love and the mission of God is flowing through his or her heart, then you will find the right kind of person. Are you with me? It clarifies the kind of mates that we're looking for here. But secondly, Jesus says that we will be like the angels in heaven. Now, I don't know about you, but I grew up in a day and age where there were pictures on the walls of six-foot-five Swedish model angels. Anybody? All blonde hair, blue-eyed, which is great if, unless you have, you know, black hair and you don't want to be like the demon embodiment in the, in the images. Are you with me? It's nice to be blonde-headed in those old pictures where Jesus and angels are blonde-haired and blue-eyed. It's a problem for the rest of us. The, the angels, though we kind of see them depicted in that way, like they're these Swedish models, what we see in the scriptures is that angels are big and they are glorious and they are terrifying. Every time an angel shows up, if an angel revealed itself in this room this morning, chances are many of us would scream and run out of the room. Because their, their proclamation every time they show up is, fear not. <laughs> Quit running and screaming. I think that's the modern vernacular, you know. Settle down, y'all. <laughs> it's going to be okay. Yeah, angels are different. But what we do know out of Hebrews, it says that all angels are ministering spirits sent to serve. And so there is this invitation that in resurrection, you and I aren't identifying primarily with our spouses, even on this side of eternity, but we are in purpose and in form attached and connected to God Almighty. And that we're carrying out this purpose of being ministering servants. There is something that is different about eternity. And what Jesus seems to be getting at is that resurrection is not just a continuation of this life as we know it. Where you're getting jobs and working and getting married and paying bills and dying. It's not a continuation of what we know here just continued there. It is about transformation. There is something in your body that changes and in your purpose that changes. Paul actually talks about the resurrection body in 1 Corinthians 15. And he says that when we are resurrected, we will have a spiritual body. Say that, spiritual body. Now, he's not saying that you are just spirit. He's saying that you will have a spiritual body. This thing describes that one. It's not just a physical form that's going to fade and perish and die. He's giving you a spirit-animated, spirit-motivated, spirit-centered body. So right now, uh, every one of us, there's so many people in here who have experienced some kind of loss or death in the last couple of months. And when you have that experience, you begin to see the body differently. Am I right? Several weeks ago when Chrissy's daddy passed, I got the sweet opportunity to go and to just be at the funeral home, just me and him before the funeral. And, and I was surprised. I remember this as a kid thinking, that's not a person. You know what I'm talking about? When you go to a funeral and you're experiencing this individual who is not there anymore. And I was standing there with Chrissy's dad, and I was 
able to, you know, just pray and talk to the Lord. But what I began to interact with was this is, this is a container for a spirit. That's it. Now, that container is unique to him. I still saw a lot of Jay Carter in that, in that frame, in that container, but it wasn't him. He was actually with the Lord, and I, and I knew it because there was something that was about him that was more Jay Carter than what I was seeing in front of my face. Are you guys with me? There, there is more to us than simply this physical form, right? There's more to us. One day, this thing is going to stop working, and somehow, what makes me Grant Collins is still going to be fully alive somewhere else. Still going to be fully alive in the presence of God. Right now, my body is being animated because a heart is pumping blood to my extremities and my organs. But one day, when I'm with Jesus, the Spirit of God is going to animate my body. Nothing failing, nothing deteriorating, fully alive and fully free forever in God's presence. This is the promise of God, that you can live forever with God because of the resurrection body he's going to give you. Paul says it's like the seed that it was perishable on this side, and then it got planted and it grew up imperishable. It no longer fades, it no longer fails, and he is saying that is what we see in resurrection. Are you with me? Transformation, not just continuation. And he goes on in verse 26. And guys, I hope, for those of us in the room who have experienced grief in the last couple of months, that that is a statement of hope. That's a statement of hope, because we may wrestle and walk with grief, but there is someone who we love, who if they're in Christ, they are still very much alive, right? Our hope, our hope dwells there. Verse 26, Jesus goes on and he says, now about the dead rising, have you not read in the book of Moses, again, this is Jesus poking the Sadducees in the eye. Haven't you read in the book of Moses? Guys who you only think the book of Moses means something. Haven't you read in the book of Moses in the account of the burning bush how God said to him, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob? So Jesus actually responds to the reality of resurrection by pointing to this passage out of Exodus. And notice, if you're a scholar and you're looking at this passage or you're really digging in the scriptures, you're kind of scratching your head and saying, Jesus, why is this what you're pointing to to prove the reality of resurrection? There's two things here. First off, Jesus is pointing to God's introduction of himself. What is his name? What's the name of God? I am that I am, right? One of my Bible scholar um, teachers in school used to say, his name is I am that I am and always will be. I am who I was and always will be. I am who I will be in the future and will always continue to be. In all directions that you can see, as far as your mind could even perceive it, God is. Jesus' introduction of God is, I am that I am the God of Abraham. He's saying he is a present tense God over a present tense living person. Resurrection is real because Abraham, though his body is in the dust, is very much still alive with God. But secondly, Jesus is pointing to a covenant promise. That name, I am the God of Abraham, when you read that through the Old Testament, he's not just identifying which God he is. He is saying, I am the covenant God who made a covenant to fulfill with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. He's pointing to a promise. And Jesus says, you Sadducees are so mixed up because you think that God, past tense, said something to Abraham. But I tell you that he holds this promise, present tense, with a very living and active being, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who are in his presence today. And the God who promises things is always faithful to fulfill them. Jesus says, you're really mixed up. You don't understand the power of this word. And friends, if I can just tell you this morning, we can stand on the faithfulness of God to fulfill every promise that he has spoken to us. I love that passage of scripture that says who is, that God is not a man that he should lie. He's not like us. He doesn't say something and then change his mind. Have you, ever, have you done that recently where you committed to something very quickly and then you're like, oof, I should not have said yes to that. God's not like that. He, he's not haphazard. He doesn't say one thing and then do another. God says what he's going to do, and then he doesn't. And even with Abraham, whose spirit is in the presence of God today, God's promises are still being fulfilled, and Abraham is watching them. For some of us today, we wrestle with this reality. that Some promises 
didn't seem to get fulfilled. I thought God promised something, and I didn't see it happen. And he says the story hasn't ended. We think the grave is the end point, and it's just a comma. It's just a hyphen. It's just something that's pointing to the next step of the story. And all of us are invited into this resurrection narrative and what God wants to do through our lives. Verse 27. Jesus says, he is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are mistaken. Now He uses this word twice. And to be honest, guys, when I read this passage of scripture, uh, I think for many of us, we have embraced the idea of resurrection. We don't fully understand it. I'm sure of that. But we've kind of embraced that idea. But what really stands off the page to me here is these two words, error and mistaken. It's actually the same Greek word. Okay, When you look at what Jesus is saying, he is saying um, that this is the core of the passage, I believe. And it's this Greek word, planeo. It means to wander or to go astray or to lead someone into error. It means to seduce someone away from the truth. Now, look at that. What is it that Jesus says causes us to go astray or be seduced away from the truth? What's it say? You do not know the scriptures or the power of God. You're in error. You are wandering. You've been seduced away from the truth for these two reasons. Because you don't know the scriptures that you seem to talk about all the time. And you certainly don't know the power of God that resurrects dead bodies and fulfills every promise spoken. This, friends, is why we are planeo, why we are in error. Because we have lost sight of the scriptures and the power of God. I think this is a really interesting combination, don't you? Because oftentimes in, in churches or even in our, our Christian life, we tend to grab a hold of one of those things or the other. It, it's like if there were two ropes attached to two different boats, and somehow when we grow up in the church or in Christianity, we think, I've got to grab a hold of one of these. I, I either am devoted to the scriptures and to the word of God and to sound doctrine and to theology and to like going to school and learning more about what the Bible says. There's one rope. Or I have to let go of that one in order to grab a hold of the rope of charismatic giftings and power and prophecy and healing and the manifestations of the Spirit, the Spirit of God flowing in worship, healing the sick, raising the dead, cleansing the leper. And somehow there is this weird pressure that I've got to do one or the other, but I can't do both. And in Jesus, we find one person to whom all of the ropes are tied. You come to him and you learn not only how to see the scriptures for what they are, because, man, when he taught, he taught with authority. If Jesus was here this morning, he would parse the scripture and he would show you very plainly what it means to be fully devoted to him, fully alive and still locked in this humanity. He taught with authority. Jesus knows what it is to teach even the teachers of the law, right? Even as a 12-year-old boy, he's sitting in the temple and people are saying, wow, this kid really knows the word. Why? Because he is the word, right? He is the word. The word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword, penetrates to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and the attitudes of my heart. Is he talking about black and white, just scripture? No, he's talking about the, the Bible as the revelation of Jesus in humanity. He's talking about the scriptures of God being the, the pointer, the springboard into a developing relationship with God. But man, he is also full of the spirit, right? We see the heavens actually crack open and the spirit descend and dwell on him in the form of a dove. We see him empowered to cast out demons and heal the sick and declare the kingdom. This is the marker of Jesus's life. And often... We feel like they need to split into separate things. Now, here's what I recognize even past churches. You and I operate like that. I think quite often we think I've got to do either one or the other. If I engage God with my cerebral mind, somehow I miss out on him showing up in power in my spirit. Or if I'm a charismatic person, I just like coming to church, but please don't give me too much of that Bible. That's just getting in the way of Jesus. Hello. We got a real problem. Are you with me? Jesus comes as the fulfillment of both. And if you and I are going to follow Jesus, then we're going to have to become like him who teaches with authority and walks in the power of the Spirit. 
The world is looking for people who are rooted and who are fruited in the power of the Spirit. Who, because of your deep roots in the work and the voice of God through the ages, because of the enduring presence of the Holy Spirit in your life, people can come and eat from the fruit of your life and find healing and transformation for their souls. But you say, I don't know, that's too sticky, man. The Holy Spirit's weird. He does weird things. He's he's God, (laughs) y'all. If we can put that in some good southern vernacular this morning. He's God, (laughs) y'all. What are you going to do? Where else do we start to diminish God and put him in a box except when it comes to the Holy Spirit? And we say, oh, I'm uncomfortable there. That's problematic because he's God. And God does what God wants to do. Are we people of the word and are we people of the spirit? You know, when we started, um, even, even in our city, we have incredible Bible churches and we have incredible charismatic churches. And I've been to both and I find the, the lack in both, where I have lots of Bible but no spirit, no power. And then I go to power churches with no Bible and feel like, man, somehow there's no power there either. What would it be like for us as a community to begin to bless those places but also recognize for us God has called us to something that's different? That we will be people who are tethered both to the, the deep-rooted scriptures that call us into the heart of God throughout the centuries. That he teaches us to walk fruitfully and faithfully with the word. That we submit our lives to the word. That we don't make decisions about politics and sexuality and relationships and work based on how we feel. But actually on what God has revealed through the scriptures. But when we walk it out, we walk in mercy and in compassion and power. That when people engage you in the workplace and you pray for them, even though you've had a rough day, they get healed. They get a word of knowledge that reframes their life. They receive a word of wisdom that teaches them how they should take steps over the next couple of years. Are you with me? What would it be like for us to do both? To somehow tether ourselves to the person of Jesus, not to just scripture, not to just power, but to walk faithfully with who God is and what he's called us to do. I believe that this is it's a deep conviction that I have, and it's a deep conviction about our church. And I think it's what Jesus calls all of us to. Come, let me make you like me. When he called his disciples to himself, he simply said he called them so that they could be with him and become like him. So, are you with Jesus? Are you living your life in the scriptures, being formed and directed and guided by what The Lord is saying, yes, even the Old Testament. Some of you are like, oh, no, not the dreaded Old Testament. Yes, even that. Yes. Are you allowing God to speak through the Old Testament? If you're new to the Bible, I know that this can be really, really overwhelming sometimes to read Old Testament scripture and to figure out, how does this point me to Jesus? But we always, after Christ, have to put the filter of Christ and his mercy and compassion over top of what the scriptures are saying. All the scriptures are God-breathed, and they are meant to point us to Jesus. Everything is revealing Jesus, right? And this is what God is calling us to. Finally, not only do we need to ask ourselves in the Holy Spirit, God, have I devalued the gifts of the Spirit or the Holy Spirit, or have I devalued the Scripture? And how will you teach me and allow me to grow into those things? But lastly, this is a stern warning against becoming a Sadducee, right? They're just sad, you see? It's, it's a stern warning against us becoming like this group of people who wanted everything very black and white, but they had no space for the mystery of God. They had no space for God being bigger than what just happened in the sanctuary on a Sunday morning. You know, when we talk about um, opposition to Christ, like I said earlier on, we talk a lot about Pharisees. But how many of you struggle with like washing rituals to maintain your salvation? Anybody? No? No strict eating codes? No? Okay. That's, That's Pharisaical. We don't understand Pharisees. You know who we do understand? Sadducees. People who just feel like their lives are bent on pleasure and chasing after the next experience to make this life worth it. So often we talk to the Pharisees in the room, but there are 10 Sadducees for every one Pharisee. And we are being fed a steady diet of Sadduceeism 
Go after everything that's going to make you feel alive because this is all you got. YOLO, right? And in the midst of that, I think God wants to remind us. He wants to elevate that you have been created for eternity. And it starts now and it goes forever. It's not that this life doesn't matter. That's also an extreme that we don't embrace. God says this thing has tremendous value and importance. But you were created for eternity, and one day you will receive a resurrection body. So how are you living today with eternity in mind? One of my favorite passages of Scripture, and I close with it, is where Peter says, we set our hope fully on the grace to be given us when Jesus Christ is revealed. Think about that. It's something to have your hope set for you. It's another thing for you to dial in every day and to say, where is my hope today? Is it in this job going well or this conversation going perfectly? Is it in my marriage? Is it in how much money's in the bank account? How many of you know all of those things will go through ups and downs? All of them, right? Everything that can be shaken will be shaken. However, he says, set your hope. You put your finger on the dial and put your hope back on the grace that's going to be given when Jesus is revealed. One day, Maya, Jesus is going to look you dead in the face. One day, Anna, Jesus is going to look you dead in the face. And he's going to transform not just your circumstance, but you. I set my hope there. Where's your hope, friends? Where's your hope? I want you to think about it. Where's my hope? Go ahead and stand to your feet. What would it be like if we lived with eternity tattooed on our eyelids? Everything that we see, everything that we think is run through the lens of eternity and this resurrection power of Jesus. How would you live differently today? Father, we steal our hearts in your presence this morning. Lord, we confess that we are quick to try to fill up on experiences and things that are detached from eternity. Lord, we're like functional Sadducees. And Lord, I just feel you kind of reminding us and calling us deeper this morning to remind us that you have called us to live eternal lives. Lord, I ask you that the urgency of today, Father God, that it would reverberate in us and remind us that you have formed us for resurrection and for life with you forever. So God, would you meet us? Would you free us from the bondage of chasing after experiences because our eyes aren't set on you? Lord, I thank you. You have called this group of people to understand the life that is truly life, and you are resurrecting us. I thank you that your Holy Spirit is already breathing over us. Lord, even this morning as we were singing, show me your glory, your word says that we have an ever-increasing glory through us, or through the Holy Spirit who lives in us. And so we just pray this morning, Lord, wherever we've been tethered, Lord, to the Scripture or to the power of God, would you call us into both in your Son, Jesus? Right now, if you feel like, man, you have diminished the power of the Scriptures in your life, or you have, you have diminished the power of the Holy Spirit, or maybe held the Spirit at an arm's length because it was uncomfortable or because you didn't understand Him, I want you just to apologize to God. Just repent. It's a confession. God, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, I haven't devoted myself to your scriptures. I haven't been hungry in pursuing you in the word. Father, I'm sorry. I'm sorry we've let our culture speak louder than your spirit and your scriptures. Father, for those of us who have been terrified of the Holy Spirit, maybe we just didn't grow up around you, Holy Spirit, or hearing about you. But right now, we just surrender ourselves. And we ask you, Lord, come and fill us. Come and fill us, Lord. We surrender. We don't know what it looks like, but we simply surrender. If that's you this morning, you just say, I want, I want to surrender again. I want to surrender to the authority of the Scriptures and to the power of the Spirit. Would you just open your arms to him and just say, yes, Lord, fill me. Fill me. I open my arms like a cup. Fill me. Come and fill me, Lord. Father, we want to reverence your word. We want to reverence your spirit. I thank you. The Holy Spirit is the deposit that guarantees your inheritance to come. And the Holy Spirit is given without measure to those who believe. Without measure. He is the mark 
of the kingdom of God. Father, we just ask you for more. More. Don't be nervous. Ask him. Lord, would you give us more? Would you give us more? We want all of you, Lord Jesus. We want all of you. Thank you, Lord. As we close today, we want to just open up um, this room, the front of the room specifically. I'm going to invite my prayer team to come. Um, elders, if you will come. and just we, we just want to partner with you in prayer. Some of you have some tremendous issues going on. Um, you need to be healed. you got some things that are binding you up that you need to be set free from. For some of you, you're just partnering with other people to pray through job situations or relationship situations. Everything's valid. Or maybe this morning, you just want to come and sit in God's presence and you want to surrender to His Word and to His power. We want to make space for that. So I'm going to bless you and then I'm going to just open it up for us to transition. And may the Lord bless you and keep you. May He make His face shine on you and be gracious to you. May God turn His countenance to you and give you peace. We pray that everywhere your foot steps today, that you feel the goodness and the glory and the mercy of Jesus. That you would feel his smile over you. That when you turn to him, you see his face and not his back. That you know that he is for you and with you, and he will never leave you or forsake you. God, I pray that you would go with my friends and that you would anoint them for every good work. I pray that today they would be reminded that their lives are not their own, that they were bought with a price. It's the precious blood of Jesus. Father, I just ask you that every single day, Lord, is a, a praise offering to your name. It's just one big thank you for saving us. So we live for you today, Jesus. In your name.